Hi everyone, this is Nature Tripping. I'm Cathy. And I'm Jo. Welcome to our podcast. It's about going outside to experience the wildlife that's all around us. We're going to be chatting about where we are and what's happening. Sometimes we'll just leave the microphones recording so we can spend some time just listening. In the bog and we learned so much in episode 15 we felt we needed to come back and take another look we also realized that peat isn't just about the uplands and that uh, a short distance away west of manchester there's lowland raised bog so we've come to an area called chatmoss to find out all about lowland raised bogs and we're here today with two people who know a lot about the particular area that we're in. So let, let's introduce them. Jenny. Hi, I'm Jenny. Um, I'm part of the Lancashire Peatlands Initiative team at the Wildlife Trust Lancashire, Manchester and North Merseyside. And we're here today on Little Walden Moss, which is one of our wonderful, lovely lowland raised peat bogs. And this is part of Chatmoss, isn't it? Absolutely. Yeah. Chatmoss um, was once one of the largest lowland peat masses in the UK. Unfortunately, there's only about 1% of it remaining now as kind of visible bog. The rest has suffered from peat extraction, conversion to agriculture. But yeah, so Chatmoss is kind of the big area and then we've got little fragments of it remaining. My name's Dave Steele, I'm a local bird watcher who, uh, who was overjoyed at the fact that the wildlife just came along into my life. They actually purchased Bedford Moss, which is not far from us now. That's a lowland raised peat bog that wasn't too damaged, but it was very dry. And they came along about 35 years ago and they brought an air used to wander as a lad and brought it back to life. Right back to nature. And now I've got Little Wilder Moss. Little Wilder Moss, which was turned into a desert because somebody wanted to extract peat, is now a haven for nature. It's a joy for me to walk through it. And the squelch of the moss as you go through it yeah. tells me it's alive again. Yeah. Shall we talk a little bit about the history of this site that we're on? We've already mentioned a little bit, but let, let's, let's talk about what happened to this peat bog, this raised bog, or maybe even how it formed in the first place and then what happened to it. <laughs> yeah, so lowland raised peat bogs formed basically after the end of the last ice age. You know, glaciers melted. Um, originally the areas would have been wooded um, during a slightly kind of warmer period and then the woodland sort of disappeared naturally and peat started to form on top of it. This created these wonderful areas of lowland raised peat bog, and they're called raised because they literally form domes. There are apparently some areas remaining where you can almost see that dome, not here anymore, unfortunately. Um, 
And then, yeah, these bogs basically just kind of existed for thousands and thousands of years, just merrily doing their thing, sequestering carbon for the atmosphere, providing lovely homes for wildlife, being brilliant. And then people got a bit of wind of them and just thought, well, this is a wasteland. This is rubbish. I can't build on it. I can't farm it. What's the point of this? There's an amazing quote from Daniel Defoe and he visited Chat Moss in, I think it's something like 1724. He was not a fan. <laughs> he basically um, wrote this whole passage about how rubbish it was, which ended in what nature meant by such a useless production it is hard to imagine for the land is entirely waste. I mean, these were not seen as one, the wonderful habitats that today we know they are. And so it kind of became a bit of a challenge for the, our early industrialists to, to make this land work for them. So people started to drain the bogs drain the water out of them, started adding nutrients to kind of fertilise the land, to start trying to turn it into what was seen as useful land, which a couple of hundred years ago sort of made sense. Um, now, however, we know that that was a really terrible idea. But we can fast forward a couple of hundred years, the late 90s, early 2000s, and Little Walden Moss, the area we're stood on now, was bought by a peat extraction company and the peat was milled for use in horticulture. And this really nearly spelt the end of Little Walden Moss. So this is peat that has built up over thousands of years. Mm. So there's a lovely big thick layer. Yeah. Meters and meters, probably about eight to 10,000 years. Peat forms at one millimeter a year. So we're looking at maybe eight meters mm. of peat was literally just dug out of the ground. Huge drainage ditches were dug to take all the water out, the vegetation was stripped off the top, and massive machines came in and removed all of the peat, almost down back to your kind of glacial clay again. In some areas, there's only about 30 centimetres of peat remaining. In some of the, the good areas, we've got maybe a metre, a metre and a half. Um, this just destroyed this habitat you know all the wonderful wildlife we can hear skylark singing in the background well, there was no skylark because there was nowhere for it to sing and that just started in the 1990s yeah the site was was all but destroyed it looked like mordor you know it was like the moon but black yeah um dry flaky black nothingness and in terms of climate change and carbon presumably huge amounts huge amounts of, CO2 of carbon of, emitted yeah, as well as the actual removal of the carbon yeah. in the peat yeah peat is is pretty much carbon mm. that's that's what it is and as soon as you um expose that to oxygen carbon and oxygen carbon dioxide really potent greenhouse gas mm. This area of Chat Moss, a bit of research was done recently and it showed that greenhouse gas emissions from Chat Moss are actually higher than can be sequestered by all of Greater Manchester's 11 million trees. Um, it's, it's really significant. Um, across the UK, 4% of our greenhouse gas emissions come from degraded peatlands. This area is actively, actively seeping emitting. CO2 into the yeah. atmosphere. So 
quick. We need to do something yeah, absolutely. to stop that. And actually, the first thing you need to do is just get it wet again. Peat wants to be wet. That's kind of how it forms. That's how it exists. And you get peat wet again, and you can significantly reduce those. That's an oyster catcher, Carling, there. And that's what's happened here. So from this, this bare extremity that, was, that was, used to make me cry, it's coming in summer, there was clouds of peat in the air. The milling process is brutal, absolutely brutal to this landscape. If you just have a quick comparison, there's me pushing a bike along an old pathway and there's plumes of peat in the air. Like and black dust. It's like dust that covers you and nothing can be on it at all. They used to cut and stack it before. Cut, mm. Cutting and stacking it was, was slightly less damaging because it was a very slow process. In fact, some of your birds used to nest within the stacks of peat as they dried it out. But once they got this brilliant idea not to actually completely wipe it away. With industrial machinery. I could cry, and I did cry. It was, mm. it was mm. dreadful, but this is your oyster capture there. Daniel Defoe and I would have had a wonderful argument in the pub <laughs> over our port or whatever as we drank in those days. So if you think about restoration, you want to wet it, how do you do that? So um, our lowland raised peatlands are entirely rain fed. So they don't get their water from rivers, streams, anything. It's all from rain. So what we've got to do is make sure that when the rain falls, it stays on site. So when they were drained, great big ditches were dug. So we're going to fill in those ditches, we're going to block them. And then another thing we'll see loads of as we're walking around is um, what's called buns. So these look like little kind of low peat walls. You can see one just down there. But actually, they're kind of like icebergs. What we see is only the tip. And to create a bund, you dig a big trench, you backfill it with peat, you squash it down really, really hard. And basically that becomes waterproof. Water does not move from one side of a bund to another. It's, it's really quite clever, actually. <laughs> just like, oh, that's, that's excellent. That's just Pete doing that. Um, so we put in buns and that helps to keep the water on site and keep it where we want it to be. So you do lots of sort of hydrological surveys and look at the topography, figure out where to put these buns. And it, it pretty much works almost immediately you'll start seeing the ground getting wet again. Mm. If we look across out in front of us now, it's kind of like a big brown lake. <laughs> yeah. Isn't it? Yeah, so this area we're looking at um, was subject, still subject to peat extraction up to kind of 2017. So this is one of the areas that's you know, not as far along its restoration journey. And so that's why we can see these bigger areas of water and we can still see a lot of brown. But the idea would be there wouldn't be this open water eventually. Yeah, the, absolutely. Yeah. So, you know, sort of naturally on a lowland raised peat bog, you're going to get bog pools, um, which are brilliant. and They get full of fabulous kind of insects and invertebrates. 
Um, we're always going to have some bigger areas of water on this uh, site. Fantastic for the bird life, obviously. Um, but what you will find, and we can see in front of us, is you know an area that would have been just sort of plain water is now starting to be colonised by sphagnum. We've got this kind of amazing green carpet. Mm, do you want to go and get some? Yeah, that? should we go and get some? It's marvellous. And it kind of looks like a green water weed or something, but it isn't, is it? No, it's um, it's wonderful. It's this sort of, it just looks like a bit of slimy, stringy, mossy, mossy and which basically is what it is. Um, Long dangly strands yep. in the water. And you can actually see, you can see the tips there are yeah. green, but then at the bottom you can see it's kind of this lighter, sort of almost yeah. pale brown colour. And did, did that, did this, I mean we can see sphagnum stretching right across the edge of this pool, but did that just invade naturally or was that... No, of? we've brought that yeah. in, yeah. Um, but one of the so this is sphagnum cuspidatum so this is the aquatic version and what's one of my favorite things about it is to colonize sphagnum cuspidatum you get a handful of it you stand at the edge of your water body and you chuck it <laughs> it's brilliant it's so fun i love it <laughs> and you can stand there fling moss around and be and like i'm doing conservation <laughs> <laughs> and it proliferates and fills up the yeah 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 if the conditions are right and it's happy, it just goes. And I mean, I'm stood here, I've got a, a handful of it at the moment, and you know, it's just sort of, you can tell it's damp, but then the minute you squeeze it, huge amounts of water come out of it. It can hold up to 20 times its own weight in water. And basically that's why peatlands are so squelchy mm. and why they're so wet. And like, I've just squeezed that out, it's now kind of reduced in volume a bit. Sort of feels like a damp flannel. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And then we can just chuck that back into the pool and it'll happily mm. sort of, yeah. Like, it's just like a little sponge, really. It's wonderful stuff. So you'd expect to see this green mat uh, just spread out into the whole of this maybe area. not it's probably not going to cover the entire area because this is a really big water body um but also that's kind of okay because we want to keep those mm. um as areas for for our wading birds yeah and, and and it's good to have some open water as well yeah. but yeah we can see at the edges this green mat of of the sphagnum cuspidatum is covering and then as that happens we'll get other plant species and other sphagnum species will colonize as well and they'll create there'll be different ones that will create these wonderful sort of hummocky mounds and you get loads of different colors you get kind of ruby reds and golden yellows and all sorts it, it's really cool moss you can see around us as well we've planted lots of cotton grass um, so there's two different species there's common cotton grass, which forms a kind of mat, it spreads out. And then there's also hare's tail cotton grass, which forms these little hummocks. Mm. They're just beginning to come into flower and then give that a couple of months, mm. what do you reckon, kind of? Yeah, going into May. It, yeah, April, May, you get this, this white... Nodding snow, little bob yeah, yeah, cotton. Well, you've seen it up in the hills, haven't yeah. you? Yeah. 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 yeah, and it's yeah. good for a particular butterfly, I believe, isn't it? The large heath butterfly. Now, unfortunately, we don't have any on site here at Little Walden Moss. Um, the large heath butterfly, in 
Chat Moss was once so prolific, it was actually known as the Manchester Argus. Um, and I mean, they, you know, there would have been clouds of them everywhere. Yeah. Unfortunately, um, drainage, damage, extraction formed the large heath to go completely locally extinct. Yeah. But that was up until the summer of 2020 when mm. we managed to reintroduce them to Astley Moss, which is just around the corner, um, which was, oh, it was brilliant. It was just so exciting. It was right in the middle of lockdown. We had no idea whether we were even going to manage it. It was really stressful, but, but we did. And, and did you great. take them in as caterpillars or chrysalises or butterflies? As the pupa. Yeah. Um, so there's another lowland raised bog site um, up just outside Garstang with Marley Moss and there's a surviving population of large heath there. We were able to take six, just six, pregnant females from there they went off to Chester Zoo who um, looked after them they laid their eggs there the caterpillars hatched they then overwintered and then once the caterpillars had pupated we brought them down to Astley Moss and they sat in this little release enclosure and basically as the butterflies emerged sort of one by one over a period of about what was it about three weeks or so Dave? Um, you just go down every day and release them and there they were and they're brilliant they're such sweet little things <laughs> they're kind of really lazy which is quite lovely so basically you'd sort of open the enclosure and they'd fly out and go like ooh some cross-leaved heath my favourite food I'll stay here <laughs> um, yeah so there's cross-leaved heath, which is a type of heather, that's their preferred nectar source. But then the cotton grass, the hare's tail cotton grass, that is the main food source of the caterpillars. And that's where they overwinter as well. They like burrow down into the hummocks and just kind of chill out there for a few months. And then hopefully around this time of year, they should start emerging. Mm. It'd be wonderful if we could go and mm. them, but they're really tiny. We'd never find them. Yeah. <laughs> so there's some things that you've actively kind of reintroduced to the site, but there's yeah. like the sphag this particular type of aquatic sphagnum moss and the butterfly pupa. But there's also things that just turn up, aren't there? You know, yeah. you, you make the habitat right again. More like the birds. Yeah, and, mm. and things Absolutely. just start happening, don't yeah. they? And that's yeah. magical, I think, when that happens. One of the things I always recall is the Cuddyshead Moss section of this reserve, which is only 17 hectares, isn't it? I yeah. think it is 11 or 17 hectares. That area there wasn't quite as damaged because there's a main North Sea gas pipe that runs on the edge of this reserve and they couldn't move heavy machinery across. Mm. So although it was extracted in a piecemeal way, it wasn't totally destroyed. So what I used to see in summer, I used to go there quite a lot because it was my little place, my tranquil place, rather than looking at the peak destruction that's going on in this area. You go there and you see dragonflies emerging. And obviously, because every time immemorial, these dragonflies would come up and come over here. But over here was bare. And it was disheartening. You just see them flying around. There was nowhere for them to go. Now when you come here, so you can come here on a summer's day, a nice summer's day, and the hoppy turns up, hoppy from Africa, breeds only, it only breeds, it breeds here in the summer and it disappears again. They wait to breed in old carrying crows nests. And when the carrying crows are finished nesting, they take over. They raise a young. Why they raise young so late? Because of the dragonflies. You can literally actually stand where we are now, and in summer you'll see the odd two or three hobby come from the area because they've been drawn to this area, fly up, get to quite a height, suddenly race along 
catch a dragonfly, wings off, eat the dragonfly as it glides along. Mm. Why is that hobby here? Because the dragonfly is here. Why are the dragonflies here? Because this land's been restored to how it should be. And so it's bringing stuff in all the time. Now one of the sections we mentioned before is quite wet. It's not. It's, it's got quite a bit of junkus, as we call this vegetation. And you're not necessarily going to change that. So that's got water rail in there. Mm. And water rail is, you know, uh, uh, you go to a marshland somewhere, you know, and you find a water rail. Well, this, we've got a little marshland over there. So the water rail starts squealing in, in, in there. Sedge warblers now. Sedge warblers like a messy wet overgrown area. Sedge warblers have come back to this. All the way from Africa, this bird about four or five inches long comes to here. Didn't used to come here before. It may have come here before the destruction. Yeah, generations well, back. Yeah, yeah, generations back. And they know that. They, they've rediscovered this place. Mm. So the stuff you bring back now, when I, my, the waders we mentioned, the waders that come through these pools, they're actually coming in. My, my list of waders, if you want a, a ticky list type of thing in my list, there is about eight for the Moslems. Snipe, you know, Curlew, Redshank. Now, it's got a, it's, it's, it's gone up by about 18 different species. Abacets have come here to this side. You just know when you sit here that this restoration is saving wildlife and bringing wildlife in. And the balance is being created where, you know, you can see all the birds probing in the peat, trying to get some food. You know, they're stopping here now. So a bird on its migration all the way from Africa going up to the hills, it won't stay, necessarily stay here to breed because this isn't quite its habitat. They've gone up to the Arctic. The Dunlin and like will stop here at this site. So it goes, whoa, look at that. That's how it used to be. It is wonderful to, to see that wildlife returning and just knowing that, you know, by creating and, well, restoring, recreating that habitat, we're providing a home and it is a bit you know, build it and they will come absolutely and, and it's yeah, yeah i've got evidence i've got i've got i've got my notebook yep here's my little red book it's a big red book actually <laughs> it's a big red book but yeah this this proves it i've got the records that go back that prove the destruction and also what's coming back Male metapipit doing his display fight, they parachute down. Because they're not singing from a tree, because they're in this kind of landscape, they go quite high 
they sing a bit and then they actually drop down slowly, 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 parachute you down so you can hear as much smell as possible, it drops. If he's got a little tree, he will land on it. Basically, most of the time they land on the ground. Whereas a skylight just uses the heavens, so it goes straight up, stays there, moves along a bit, and then drops back down again. These landscapes are just wonderful and they are really undervalued and when you come and stand in the middle of a beautiful lowland rose bog on a lovely day like it is today, you think how, how can it be justifiable to all but completely destroy them? just to fill some cheap bags of compost and grow on, you know, some plants that you can buy from your garden centre, when in fact there are perfectly good alternatives. We are running a, a peat-free campaign um, at the moment, trying to encourage everybody to just go peat-free in their gardens at home. And it is literally a step that everyone could make today that could make a real difference. You know, I, I'm sure kind of most people sometimes just feel a bit overwhelmed by the scale of the climate emergency, the scale of the nature crises we're facing. And so you do feel a bit like, what can I do? Well, that's what you can do. You can go peat free. So next time you go to the garden centre or the supermarket or, you know, the DIY shop, if it doesn't say peat free all over that bag of compost in huge great big letters don't buy it just say no and if you can't find any peat free compost go and ask the staff and say hello where's your peat free compost please um, and if they haven't got any say well I will be leaving goodbye you know vote with your feet vote with that. your shopping I've done, that. I've done that to a local famous garden centre in this area and they said oh the peat free is over there and it wasn't peat-free, mm. 40, 60% peat in it. But they, even the staff believed it was peat-free because mm. it had less peat in it. This area is being restored, isn't it? And peat is not being extracted from here. No. But presumably any peat that anyone buys, whether it's come from Ireland or from Eastern Europe, has come from habitats exactly yes. like this. Yes, yes. absolutely. Or habitats that could be regenerated to become mm. exactly like this. Basically, you can't artificially create peat. The only no. way to get peat is to destroy a peatland. Yeah. And, and that's the only way to do it. And they're just, it's inexcusable and it's unjustifiable. And actually it's not just your bags of compost that you've got to look at as well. A lot of the plants um, that you know you're going to go and buy and you're going to go and buy something beautiful that's going to be amazing for pollinators and it's native and it's lovely if it's grown in peat it is doing more harm than good um, so it's about making that decision to go peat free and mm. only buy plants that are grown in, in peat free growing media check the labels ask at the garden centres, ask the staff, and actually there's a, a growing number of really lovely little independent peat-free nurseries, most of which will offer online ordering and delivery, which is my total favourite thing to do, and I am horrendous and I fall down massive online peat-free plant 
ordering rabbit holes and look at my basket and there's 700 things in it. I think maybe I don't need all of those. Um, <laughs> or you could get together and grow them from seed. Absolutely. Mm, yeah. Grow things from seed, take cuttings, buy bare root. Like bare root plants, trees are brilliant. Mm. They're cheaper and they're peat free. There's no peat in them. It's great. I truly believe if people knew Absolutely. what they were doing and if people knew the environmental consequences of their choices at the garden centre then many of them would just not go anywhere near a bag of peat definitely where that peat's come from the habitat that it's once supported that's just not known or understood so there's an education there is process that needs to one of the things i do quite a lot is i'll I'll go out and i'll talk to people about peatlands and and why you know we're encouraging people to go peat free and you, you know, in five minutes, you basically show a picture of what Little Walden Moss used to look like during peat extraction, this black, desiccated wasteland, completely devoid of life, emitting huge amounts of carbon into the atmosphere. And then you show them a picture of, you know, what it should look like. And you watch, I almost have to stop myself from laughing now, you watch everyone's faces as their jaws drop. And you just go, what? No. Right, well, I'll never do that again. Mm. Um, and as you say, a lot of it isn't people being like, well, I don't care, I really like destroying mm. peatlands. It's not that at all. But it's about just not knowing and not having that, that knowledge to be able to make that informed decision. Yeah. You know, there is still a section of some of your kind of traditional horticultural industry sort of stalwarts who are still no it's peat's the only thing it's the only way i can grow but realistically it's it's a hugely outdated um opinion and it isn't something that's going to be able to be taken forward into the future but yeah just go peat free spread the word and you can genuinely make a difference to nature to the climate and you can do that tomorrow This is nine miles from Manchester. It's nine miles from Warrington. And we have this on our doorstep. This is a national park that never was. This is a national park whereby you're not far from it. Public transport will bring you here. Walk here, cycle here. My daughter and her children cycle all over this moss and they go right all the way through to Astley and so on and so forth. There's a mining museum across the way. It's a landscape that you can visit. You don't need much from it other than just arrive, you don't need to bring much to it, it'll give you everything you want. Yeah, one of the things that I really love about Little Walden Moss specifically is that we do have public access, there is a footpath that runs around three sides of the reserve, which is fantastic because actually a lot of the time, because we only have these little fragments remaining, they they're hard to find and there isn't public access mainly because it just wouldn't be safe um, and you know we'll obviously encourage people not to go wandering mm. through the middle of the bog because you could very easily fall in very quickly um, but you know follow that footpath come and have a look we have some information boards and things like that but also what we've done is created 
um, little mini bogs in boxes that sit at the side of the pass that you can lift the lid off and there'll be sphagnum mosses in there and cotton grasses and all the things, all these wonderful plants that you find on our moss are there and shove your hands in it, poke it, you know, squidge it a bit and, um, and you can really experience it, but you know, from the safety of the foot, footpath, which is really great. And a lot, of, a lot of the time people just don't know that these sites are here and they are kind of hidden and maybe they're not the showiest you know the they don't look like a rainforest we don't have orangutans running through them i mean it might be quite cool but <laughs> um but they're magnificent and i don't i don't know about you but i walk through them and i look down i look at my mm. feet mm. and i look at the green of the sphagnums and the kind of bright jewel ruby red of the cotton grass as it's emerging and we look at the insects and then suddenly you look up and you find the birds flying above your head and yeah you know summer comes and you've got dragonflies in these you know almost exotic colors whizzing around your head and it's all here and it's all on our doorsteps and yeah we should just really love them because they really deserve to be loved i think the other thing that's been absolutely amazing this morning walking around has been seeing the ancient trees that have been left behind so that you, you can look over a watery swampy area and see these primeval tree trunks and um, roots that have been here for thousands of years so we've literally walked back in time haven't we many thousands of years this morning absolutely it's like walking on an 8,000 year old landscape yeah. and so those trees would have been growing here really before the peat started forming and yeah. then they've been preserved in the peat mm. and maybe fallen down and or been chopped and they're linked you know their stumps and trunks are lingering and so you can see them now easily can't you so the pe people walking along the footpath could could yeah. see these oh yes, yeah yeah there's, there's there's one a little sitting area with an yeah. notice board there and there's all actually there you can sit on it yeah that's a, go back to that time because so much of the peat was extracted the the peat that we have remaining is basically the the oldest peat the stuff that was very first laid down after the end of the last ice age and so when you look at it it is it's almost flaky and you can see huge amounts of vegetation mm -hmm. um preserved in it you know you can basically pick up a little bit and like oh here's some twig that's oh, 8,000 years old um, and it's, it's everywhere and basically the reason why this didn't get extracted is because it it's less good quality peat oh, yeah. for, uh, for mm. horticulture mm. it's so sort of hard and crusty yeah. and flaky wouldn't, yeah. and it Lumpy. makes it it's kind of like a fossil oil it's a bit like coal isn't it it is mm. that's exactly you yeah. know it's, it's pretty much pure carbon um, and that's all now exposed to the um, weathering and the atmosphere. Unfortunately, yeah, as soon as it's exposed mm. to oxygen, oxidizers, um, the peat's lost, it gets lost through literally being blown away. It dries out, the wind blows and it blows off site. Um, so that's why we're working so hard to get it wet and then get it revegetated again. And once we do that, we can stop those carbon emissions and eventually we can even return the site to being able to sequester carbon again, to literally suck carbon out of the atmosphere and bury it in the peat that we're stood on. Mm. The peat beneath our feet can help us 
fight the climate emergency. And we've moved across the site and we're now in an area which I think has had a little more time Absolutely. to regenerate mm. and restore. So and we've been restoring um, this area for about the last 10 years. And we can see a noticeable difference. Now I've got small bodies of water, a few metres wide, full of sphagnum. And then surrounding those pockets of water, we've got, is this cotton grass yep. that we've got? Yeah, yep. lots of lovely cotton grass hummocks. There's a mixture of the hare's tail cotton grass and the common cotton grass here. And you can see how it's really hard to define the edge of these bog pools in a lot of places because the bog pools have got carpets of sphagnum moss in them and that starts to interlink in with the cotton grass. And this makes a really wonderful habitat. You know, this is ideal sort of dragonfly nymphs where the cotton grass is growing up through the sphagnum out of the middle of the pools, that's really wonderful for the nymphs. So you get clouds of black darter. That's a type Lots of dragonfly. Of, yeah, a type of dragonfly, yeah. It's quite a small one. But they're very inquisitive. So if you actually put your hand out and I thought someone's down a male dragonfly flying around, a male black darter will land on your hand. You actually just look him in the eye. <laughs> one day I remember crossing across the reserve, I was doing a survey, it was very, very wet, it was awful weather. This black darter emerged. I picked him up. I warmed him. <laughs> you made friends with him. Yeah, you warmed him up, right? And then I put him on my shoulder to just, just keep out the wind. I walked right across the reserve. We get to the other side, he's still there. He's quite comfortable, yeah. you know. And, yeah. and then I lifted him into some a drier section of the vegetation. Hopefully he survived. Yeah, yeah I always think this side of the reserve that, that has been being restored just for that extra few years, you know, 10 years mm. restoration, you can really see what a difference it mm. makes. Um, and eventually we will be able to, to pretty much leave this to look after it's itself. I was going to ask that, yes. if, yeah. if it becomes a kind of self-sustaining habitat yeah. or whether you have to come in and manage it to stop things, it trees or whatever. That, you know, the amount of work we'll do will tail off. Yeah. And it might be that we'll need to pop in every now and again and do a few bits, but eventually it will. What we're doing is returning what was already here yeah. and what naturally should be here anyway. Yeah. I don't know how much time and money has been spent to restore this area, but it's a lot. Mm -hmm. It's probably far more than the value of the peat that was taken yeah, out of it. Yeah, this is a disappointing thing. This is a sad thing. It would be very interesting to do that economic it analysis would be very and sit back and have a think about yeah. Yeah. what was, what was that for. Yeah. You know, as you say, the economics of it all, the economics of it all is we save this planet to save mm. us, don't we? Yeah. You know, back in the 80s, mm -hmm. it was seen as the right thing to do yeah. to plant Sitka spruce all yes. over peatlands. Mm. And, you know, there were government grants available mm -hmm. for it. Drain them, shove a spruce plantation up, that's a great idea. We now know that it was a terrible idea and, you know, money is going into reversing this decision. So, yeah. And it's about doing it holistically as well, isn't it? Yeah. And thinking about the people that that industry supports and what are they going to do instead. Yeah, um, And being able to tick that box as well as the environmental box. Quite. 
And it is, it is really hard and it's really easy to say we should take every single bit of land on peat soil and restore it to bog. And that would be beautiful, but realistically, is that viable? Probably not. So along with things like the restoration that we're doing here on Little Wildermoss, we're also doing pilots and trials, looking at other ways of managing land that may currently be under intensive agriculture, which huge amounts of chat moss is. And is there other ways of managing that land that is going to keep it, you know, keep the peat in the ground, keep it wet, stop those carbon emissions, but is also going to keep that land financially viable. Are there other crops that you could take off? Could it be farmed for the carbon that it can sequester? There are options out there and we're really at the beginning of this journey and we're doing pilots and we're doing studies and we're working with other organisations because we do need to find a different way to manage our peatlands for the future and as you say, to take that real holistic look because we've got to consider nature and everyone. I've just had a little mosquito emiji mm. thing landing on me. I'm yeah. thinking all these flies yeah. in the summer. Well, you get the swallows and the swifts. Oh yeah, yes. yeah. Well, the swifts for miles around come and feed off the mussels because of all the insects. And and if it rains, they go all over the water because the insects don't emerge from the water. All these pools. So then you see the swallows, you see the swifts, you see the house martin, you see the sand martin. Sand martin sometimes bring the young here, and you see the young just sat resting. Sparrows around them looking for them. Come down at night time on a, on a hot summer's evening, you look across and there's a whole layer of insects here now that wasn't, weren't there. They weren't there this 2012 to now. So if you'd like to find out more, come and visit us, find out more about the work we're doing and find out more about lowland raised peat bogs and how important they are right across our region. Probably the best place to look is Lancashire Wildlife Trust website, which is lankswt.org.uk and you can search for the Lancashire Peatlands Initiative. And we've also got a little Facebook page um, that we just put updates on all the sort of things that we've been up to and fabulous sightings we've had. Um, and yeah, drop us a line, get in contact. We're total bog nerds, we're peat evangelists. <laughs> we love a good chat. <laughs> and there's also friends of Chat yeah, yeah, as yeah, well. yeah, yeah. We, we have meetings now and again. Yeah, and I remember the friends of Chat Moss, and we meet probably once every uh, couple of months. But yeah, if you just look up on the Facebook page, friends of, of Chat Moss, you'll come across us there and all the kind of work we have to do for the site and try and promote the site, try and get people interested to come along. You know, there are uh, organised parties of people who are actually planting or doing work on the reserve. So, friends of Chat Moss, a Facebook page. You'll easily find that one. It's been amazing to be here. Yeah. Oh, it's it's so much. nice to to get out on site and to to show people to. It just feels like such a treat. The climate emergency and the nature emergency are not two separate things. 
you cannot solve one without solving the other and we need to we need to start respecting you know all of our habitats you know i'm a total peat evangelist i love peat i love peatlands but i don't it, that doesn't mean that you know they're better than woodlands and seagrass meadows and all the things they're all super duper important and they're all properly amazing but peat is extra lovely <laughs> <laughs>